Welcome to the Cairo Radio Rundown, the only show big enough, metaphorically speaking, to handle all the Cairo Radio hosts at the same time. I'm Jake Rummel, by day the producer of the Tom and Curly Show, and by night the man who opens the blinds and allows you to look through the Puget Sound's Overton window in 15-minute increments, sometimes less. This week there was a working paper put out by the National Bureau of Economic Research suggesting that the U.S. media is considerably more negative in their reporting on COVID-19 than other English-speaking media. A couple of our shows here on Cairo cover this story. We'll start with those reactions, and then we'll transition to some other COVID news from around the station, but positive and negative in nature. Here's Tom and Curley. 65% of scientific journal articles and 54% of non-U.S. news articles were negative. Okay. So it's still mostly negative, even among the scientific uh, journal articles. But in terms of the uh, the mainstream press, 91% of U.S. media reports were negative. Right. So this is an examination of why is that? Well... It appears that, and so at first I thought, oh, this is just going to be one of those, uh, you know, pro-Trump, anti-Trump kind of uh, discussions of yeah. the news media. No, no, it's not that at all. It is, it's true as much of the right as the left, and and the you know, and vice versa. That apparently there's a taste in America for more negative news than in other countries. Hmm. That wouldn't, it would be, it's not that surprising. I mean, news you don't talk about every plane that you know landed safely at SeaTac. If there's one that crashes, that's the thing that gets sure. the news. News, you know, is is the unusual, and it's often the unusual is the tragic. So it's not that big a surprise. But they compare us to other countries, mm-hmm. and we have a higher taste, apparently, for negative news than not. And that's the real interesting thing. It's something about the American nature or our we have this predilection for more negative news. I don't know. You know, one could argue, John, and I don't know which way you would go on this, but one could argue that if you focus on negative news, it's like you, you're trying to protect yourself. So uh-huh. you want to know everything that's bad that's out there so you can be safe and not, sure. you know, do something. I mean, that, it could be like a protective uh, instinct uh, that we have. There's a great book that I had seen that uh, somebody said, I'll read this book because uh, Bill Gates read it. I didn't read it for that reason, but it's called Factfulness. Ten Reasons uh, We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. And the guy has you take a test right in the very beginning. And he explains that he's now passed this Hans Rolson. He goes out and he gives the 10 things and he says. Apparently things were worse for him. Hey, Tom, come on. Okay, see? All right, see? You know, it, okay. Come on, I'm trying to lighten I things up. I know you are. He does a test. And he says it's yeah. very easy when I do this test talking to American audiences. Um, they always pick the wrong answer because they always assume the worst. And I'll give you an example of it. Now, this is not an exact really? number, but he yeah. says, when you give the statistic that, and this I'm off memory, something, four million children in the world did not live past the age of two in, in 2018. Mm-hmm. That's the number. Mm-hmm. Okay. In 2015, the number was eight million. So mm-hmm. the story is not the going from four eight million who down died. to four, right? <laughs> yeah. It's never the progress. He says it's always for some That's reason. Funny. He said, I do this when I used to do these speeches and do these talks in other countries other than the U.S. My talk would completely fall apart because people always got the right answers. So then all of a sudden the whole underpinning of his argument being we don't really look at the big picture. We don't see the progress being made, right? We just assume the worst, assume the worst, assume the worst. And I'm not sure I assume assume it's and according to this article because we live in a if it bleeds it leads world. Dean Ursula also weighed in on this. I appreciated the way they approached it both from Ursula's perspective as a longtime newsmaker and G's as a sports journalist. I don't know that we necessarily want to hear bad news. 
even though for the longest time, as long as I've been in the news business, there's always been that line of, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Over the last, I would say, decade, we've really tried to move away from that. I mean, we've really gone to the standard of, does anyone care? Does this impact people? So we don't cover every shooting. We don't cover every dumpster fire. We don't. I mean, there was a time when you would cover a lot of those things, and you do, don't uh, anymore. But when it comes to stories about COVID-19, do you think that in general people prefer to read or hear about the bad news? And, Chef, I want you to weigh in, too. Um, yes. Yes. And here's why. Here's why we're all guilty of it. Because... Ursula, you've been in the news. You've been in news for 30 plus years. You just said it just a second ago. Um, you have been seen over the years. If it if it bleeds, it leads. So we as the consumer or listeners or those viewing the news, this is what we saw. And whether it's the nine o'clock news or the 10 o'clock news or the 11 o'clock news, we all knew that when we got ready to turn that news on in the first five minutes of the news, there's going to be something that's going to make us. Wow. Oh, did you hear about that? That type of deal. When you take sports, for an example. Right. When we talk about sports, so let's just take the NFL. When the Ian Rappaport's and the Adam Schefter's, if they're not talking about trades, if they're not talking about free agencies, if they're going to report something on a player, it sounds like this. This player, DUI. This player, domestic violence. This player, this. Not this player raised 250000 for this cause or this cause. And mm-hmm. a lot of the athletes in these areas. And I'm just saying is what I'm, what I'm saying is, is, yes, no doubt, there's bad that happens everywhere. So the negative news sells, you feel? It does. Producer Andrew Lanier also offered his take on the story. He goes by chef on the show. I disagree with their analysis here. I mean, I think the U.S. is unique in the world in how we've dealt with the pandemic, and we're doing worse than the rest of the world. So I think it makes sense that the news coverage reflects what's actually happening. Uh, One of the examples they cite is like, look, people weren't reporting on declining COVID numbers as much as they should have been, even while cases were declining. Well, that's that's absolutely true. But at the same time, we could all see what was around the corner and what could possibly happen. Um, but when it comes to, to bad news in general, unfortunately, it is what we gravitate to. It, it is why sites like Facebook uh, flourish, because our brains gravitate to something that makes us feel outraged, something that makes us feel threatened, something uh, that makes us feel anger um, in <laughs> Frankly, I think it's it's the responsibility of everyone to say, like, am I going to share something that is going to make people feel worse? Um, is the news that I'm talking about, especially like on this show, is it something that is going to make people's lives better? Is it going to make their day better? Or is it going to make them feel terrible for, for no good reason when it doesn't have the story doesn't actually impact their lives? And unfortunately, COVID is impacting all of our lives right now. I wanted to try to offer both some of the bad and good stories on this topic that we've discussed on Cairo this week. We'll get the bad out of the way first. This is Dory Monson. Bad bad in uh, general thematic, you know, takeaways. Not bad in content, obviously. How sad is this? 1,000 restaurants and bars in King County have closed down during the government shutdown of business, uh, a thousand of them, uh, and they have permanently 
shut down. They're not coming back. Uh, the total number is 1,023. That's 43% of all the closures in the food service industry have been restaurants and bars just in King County. Uh, and how sad for all of these people, these entrepreneurs, these risk takers who were going to gonna just try to live the American dream. And instead, they've been mandated into financial ruin by Jay Inslee. No data to support it. No data to the data daddy to show us exactly why that's happening. And nationally, we are seeing how destructive the COVID shutdowns are for the restaurant industry. Uh, According to the National Restaurant Association, 17% of all eateries in the country have shut their doors long-term or permanently. That is 110,000 restaurants gone. A lot of them had been in business for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and they just couldn't survive a government that, without data supporting it. And as I've said, uh, I believe I, I would not go out to eat frequently if they were all open, but I think we should be free to make that decision. Uh, my healthy young daughters. They go out, they socialize with friends on Fridays and Saturdays, and I'm not the slightest bit worried about them doing that because I, I don't think they're at much risk from COVID. I am at risk, so I'd stay away. But I think that we should all have the freedom to make that decision. One development that a lot of people are starting to feel optimistic about is the vaccine. Here's Hannah Scott and Dave Ross on Seattle's Morning News talking about the timeline we can expect locally. I'm looking at the uh, latest projection from the University of Washington. They're they're saying even with a rapid vaccine rollout, in other words, everything goes really well, uh, we would still reach at least 5,000 deaths by April. So it would basically double from where it is now, even with a successful rollout. Right. And that's a success. Well, and by April 1st, and that's because the vaccine, the to, to get to its full, you know, ability to work, it's not going to be until after, well after April, where everyone is vaccinated. So April 1st, I think we're, we're early still in the phases of the vaccination. I think that's why those numbers reflect that. So we're still into the uh, masking up thing for the foreseeable future. Absolutely. I'm going to say, you know, I think uh, current restrictions, if I had to give my best guess, I think would be in place until at least the end of January. And I would say that you're looking at uh, late spring, maybe even into the early parts of summer before we're not masking and social distancing. I tried really hard to track down some positivity and it is hard. Even coverage of the vaccine is still about how it's complicated and how we're still working out the kinks. Even vaccine news can be demoralizing in some ways. On that note, Here's Mike Lewis talking about what makes a two-dose vaccine tough to get people on board for. In a really good story in Vox today, um, Ativ Mahotra at Harvard Medical School, who's an expert in vaccines, had this to say. While I, while I recognize the situation now uh, is different and the rates of completion will almost certainly be much higher than, than for hepatitis C, for example, the prior studies highlight that the logistical barriers with a two-dose vaccine are enormous. And the second thing he said is that that second dose um, does create 
side effects. And that is something that shouldn't be overlooked. These new, he says, these new vaccines do result in a lot of flu-like symptoms. That is a sign that the vaccine is working, but I do fear that there will be a barrier for people getting that second shot. Uh, uh, he told the reporter from Vox, quote, it's harder to get a shot when you know it may knock you out for a day. Now, that's an interesting point because, and that is actually, I think, a really, really appropriate one because if you know you've got something to do or if you know that you're getting that second shot right in advance of seeing some people or going to work or going on a flight or doing something along those lines, will you put that off? And if you do put it off, is that second shot going to still be effective? Because there is a window for that as well. Can you get it when you do get it? Are you willing to based on the other things you have built around it? And so this is going to require a tremendous amount of logistical work on the vaccine end, but it's also going to require a really rigid scheduling on the patient end. You've got to be prepared to go in there, get it on time if you can, and understand that that second one is actually going to make you feel pretty lousy for at least a day. So that's the rundown for December 10th, 2020. Once again, I'm Jake Rummel. I also produce, edit, and mix the show with the assistance of the other producers here at Cairo Radio. You don't always have time to listen to every Cairo Radio show, but you'll always have time for the Cairo Radio Rundown. See you on Tuesday. <laughs>